Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, I Am Jonah. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Jonah today called I Am Jonah. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Jonah chapter 3 and pull out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder that you received when you came in this morning. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands. We can loan you one. One of our ushers will bring you one. We want you to have a copy of the scriptures in front of you. I hope you're enjoying this series as much as I am. Uh, The prophet Jonah has always fascinated me. Not because he was the only prophet in the Old Testament to disobey the Lord, uh, or because the Lord used him to bring a wicked nation to repentance. Instead, I, I think he's fascinating to me because we can all relate to Jonah. We can relate to his fear and his prejudice that caused him to want to disobey the Lord. We can relate to his humanness, it can encourage us, because it allows us to let out a big sigh of relief and say, Jonah's just like me. In a similar sense, his usefulness to God should give us hope because it allows us to say, well, if the Lord can use Jonah, then maybe he can use me. Yeah, he can, yes, he can. And I'm praying that you'll come to these conclusions by the end of our series. The key verse in Jonah is uh, chapter 2, verse 9. It reveals the kind of heart the Lord wants us to have towards him and towards serving him. Uh, Before we read it out loud together off the keynote screen behind me, let me just point out a couple things uh, from the verse. Notice this is uh, part of Jonah's, it's the end, towards the end of his prayer of repentance in chapter 2, and he's saying, um, first of all, with shouts of grateful praise. So his heart's been changed, he's, he's grateful for the Lord, so there's an enthusiasm that he has about the Lord, which I think, again, as, as I talked about a few weeks ago, uh, when I did, in the spring, I did a worship series where we looked at several psalms, and, and we could see how God's people had an enthusiasm in their worship. Then next he says, I will sacrifice to you. So he's going to back up his singing with giving back to the Lord what he should. And he says he's going to keep his promises that he's made to God as well. What I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So he knows, I can't save myself. And he knows only the Lord can save him. So let's read this out loud together off the screen. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. The book of Jonah, in essence, teaches that that obedience to the Lord brings his blessing. But disobedience brings his discipline. The Lord blesses us because he loves us just as... He disciplines because he loves. He blesses us because he's good, just as he disciplines us because he's good. Now, last week I introduced you to three 
major or kind of big picture theological themes in the book uh, that stand out in Jonah. Uh, Let's review those in case you missed it last week and so that we can commit them to memory. The first was the Lord's deep burden for lost people. The Lord has a deep burden for lost people. He cares about those that are outside of the church as well as those inside. The story of Jonah shows us that the Lord is willing to exert his power to position redeemed people in places where we can proclaim the redemptive gospel to the unredeemed. The story of Jonah means it means that the spreading of the gospel is more important, it's more important than our comfort, our preferences, our fears, our prejudices, our current job, our current house, our proximity to friends and relatives. While those things are of some importance, they are less important than the spreading of the gospel. Next, number two, is the Lord's limited patience towards our rebellion. Although the salvation of others does not depend on us, it's ironic to see that in Jonah, our rebellion can delay the gospel message from getting to the rebellious. As Spurgeon once said, our evil nature is like an ill-tempered horse that is apt to run away. For this reason, the Lord has to bridle us. He uh, pulls the reins to get us onto the path that leads us to our good and His glory. And allow me to just mention from personal experience, the longer you fight the Lord's efforts to break that ill-tempered horse within you, the more painful it will be. The third theme in the book of Jonah is the Lord's sovereign control to achieve his will. Even when it looks like we are in control, God proves that he is actually in control. Like a master chess player, he is able to move the right pieces into the right places at just the right time so that his most important objectives are completed. Now, Last week, we also studied Jonah's prayer of repentance in chapter 2. While inside the belly of the great fish, Jonah basically said, Okay, Lord, you win again. I'll go preach to those wicked Assyrians, even though I don't want to, but because you said so. You might remember me saying that Jonah 2 is important for us individually, but also corporately as a church, because if we want the Lord to use us like he did Jonah in chapter 3, as you'll soon see, then we have to make a habit of doing what Jonah did in chapter 2. Or to put it another way, the attitude of surrender in chapter 2 is the prerequisite for supernatural blessing in chapter 3. Thus, our big idea for today is this. The Lord loves to use unworthy people to do unbelievable ministry. He loves it. He loves to use unworthy people to do unbelievable ministry. However, there is a prerequisite for this truth, this big idea. You must be available. If you want to see the Lord use you as an unworthy person to do unbelievable ministry, you must be available. Now, 
After rebelling in chapter 1, then repenting in chapter 2, the Lord restores Jonah back to ministry in chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 shows us that God, what God can do with people that may be unqualified, but are available to be used by him. And when I say that, I mean they haven't filled up their lives with so much stuff that there's no wiggle room or flexibility to make some changes or to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. They've left some room for God to move. So it proves the fact that if we want to see God use us more, then we will have to start thinking of ourselves less. And so Jonah chapter 3, starting in verses 1 and 2, I want to encourage you to follow along with me as I read. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Here's the first truth uh, that we see in the passage here on your outline. Major point number one is the Lord proclaims the gospel through people. The Lord proclaims the gospel through people. Meaning he wants to use you and I to spread his message of redemption and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Uh, you'll, you might want to notice that uh, here in verse 1, it's the same phrase that's used in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. So in essence, we're back to square one. It's like we've kind of reset. Please note that you'll never see in the scriptures animals receiving a word from the Lord. There's a reason for that. This is because humans are the only part of God's creation that need direction from him. The animals and all the rest of creation do what they're supposed to do, but not humans. Although we are the greatest of God's creation, we are the worst at following him and the worst at obeying him. Jonah's story serves as a reminder that God doesn't need us to accomplish his plans. Instead, he gives us the opportunity to impact eternity here on earth by choosing us. Thus, it's a privilege, not a burden, to serve the Lord. And because the Lord doesn't want us to miss out on that amazing privilege, sometimes he will intervene and interrupt our plans to get us onto the right path so that we can be used and be blessed as we're being used. Because he knows our plans that are self-centered and self-focused and egotistical are not going to be anywhere near as good as his plan for us. So... He sometimes interrupts our plans, so we get the blessing of participating in his plans. However, there's a ditch that we need to avoid on the other side of the road when it comes to this, um, this point. Serving the Lord in any given position for any period of time is not a right. Sadly, I've run into that in some churches. I have um, run into staff members who felt entitled to their position because of how long they've been in a church or ushers, or volunteers in various ministries that felt entitled to that position because that's what they've done since they've been there. And they're going to do that job until Jesus comes back and nobody's going to stop them. That, that's when serving becomes a right as opposed to a privilege. And we have to be careful. Therefore, every follower of Jesus Christ is usable if they're available, but none of us is irreplaceable. So we have to avoid that ditch of thinking, 
no one else can do my job. Yeah, yeah, somebody else can do it. In fact, somebody might be able to do it better. And we have to have the humility to admit that. So the application that comes to mind is considered a privilege to serve the Lord. This is radical thinking in American churches. Because there are many churches that don't want to burden people with serving, and so they overstaff, or they, they don't want to impose on people. Yet, the way I look at the scriptures is, are you kidding me? The Lord expects us to serve, and it's a privilege to serve Him. You're missing out if you're not serving the Lord. When you see serving the Lord as a privilege, it radically changes your attitude in everything that you do. For example, you, you, you no longer need to say, I have to serve in the children's ministry this weekend. Instead, you should say, I get to. I get to help make disciples in the next generation. Or instead of saying, I'm too busy to serve on a ministry team right now. I just got too much going on in my life. We should say, I get to serve the Lord most high before I spend eternity with him. See, having a get-to mindset will also help us be more willing to go wherever he wants us to go, to do whatever he's asked us to do, and to say whatever he asks us to say. I don't know if you've thought of this, but I was thinking about this as I was studying this passage this week. Um, There is no one, no one in heaven right now that regrets serving the Lord. No one. There's no one in heaven right now that goes, that was a waste of time. I mean, all those years I spent in the children's ministry, all those kids I led to Christ, they're now discipling their kids and talking about me as their Sunday school teacher. I mean, what a waste of time. I mean, I would have been better just going to Walmart more. I mean, and standing in line there. Nobody's, nobody's regretting that. In fact, everybody in heaven right now, regardless of how much or how little they served, wishes they could have done more for him. Why? Because they realize, now that they're in heaven, the eternal worth of serving Christ and the temporal worth of selfishness. How everything that they spent and invested selfishly went poof, gone. Doesn't matter. So, consider it a privilege to serve the Lord. I get to plant a church was the mantra that we started saying as a launch team, and now that we've planted one, I get to help grow a church because it has eternal value and worth. Next, let's look at verses 3 and 4. So how did Jonah respond this time? Well, thankfully, he got the point from chapter 2. And so Jonah, it says, arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, and now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here's number two on your outline. The Lord always has a purpose in our obedience. The Lord always has a purpose in our obedience. Even when we can't see that purpose. You'll notice in the text it says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. You might remember me saying a couple weeks ago it was believed to have been about two miles in diameter with a total population, including the suburbs, of 300,000 to 600,000 people. 
The city was perceived to be impenetrable because it was surrounded by a wall that was 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. 100 feet tall. Some estimate that the circumference of the city and its suburbs would be somewhere around 60 miles. Thus, you could understand from this verse why it would be described as being a three days journey wide and why it was also an intimidating city to go preach at. Because, you know, you come up over the hill and, hey, there's Nineveh, and you see it off in a distance, and all, it's just like a huge wall. I mean, it's intimidating for an army, let alone uh, a prophet that's going to go preach. You might remember me mentioning a couple of weeks ago that the Assyrians were violent enemies of Israel, known for their wartime atrocities. Pastor and scholar uh, Warren Wearsby explains, he says, quote, the Assyrians were known far and wide for their violence, showing no mercy to their enemies. They impaled live victims on sharp poles, leaving, leaving them to roast, in the de- roast to death in the desert sun. They beheaded people by the thousands and stacked their skulls up in piles by the city gates. They even skinned people alive. They respected neither age nor sex, and followed a policy of killing babies and young children so they wouldn't have to care for them. Their kings boasted so much about their power and mutilating the bodies of live captives that the prophet Nahum called Nineveh the city of blood. Therefore, you can see why God wanted to burn this place to the ground, but you can also see why Jonah was not in a hurry to go preach there. You can see why this was not a missions trip to do a VBS on the beaches of San Diego. (laughs) I want you to go over there and preach. Over there? Really? And I've already talked about how uh, part of Jonah, uh, you know, his reluctance to obey the Lord in chapter 1 was fear because of how brutal and vicious the Assyrians were. But also, it was he wanted them to, he didn't want them to be redeemed. He wanted them to pay for their sins against Israel. He wanted them to have justice instead of mercy and forgiveness. I recently read a story about the relationship between Hall of Fame baseball player Jesse Jackson and his team manager, Earl Weaver. Weaver had a rule that no one could steal a base unless he gave the signal to do so. This upset Reggie Jackson, though, because he felt he could read pitchers and catchers better than anybody else, and so he felt like he could be able to decide autonomously whether to steal a base or not. So during one game, Reggie Jackson decided to steal second base without getting the go-ahead signal. He got a good jump on the pitcher and easily beat the throw to second base. As he stood up to wipe the dirt off his uniform, he smiled with delight and glanced back at his manager with sort of a, I told you so, I know what I'm doing, look. And Well, later in the game, Earl Weaver took Reggie Jackson aside and explained to him why he didn't give him the signal to steal second base. You see, the next batter after Jackson was Lee May. Lee May was the second best power hitter on the team, and when Jackson stole second, first base was left open. So the opposing team walked May intentionally. The next batter hadn't done well against this pitcher, so Weaver felt he had to send a pinch hitter in to drive home the men on base. However, this left the team without bench strength later in the game when it was needed. 
The problem that day is that Reggie Jackson only saw his relationship with the pitcher and the catcher, while his manager, Earl Weaver, saw the whole game. In the same way, we need to remember that our perspective is always very, very limited. But the Lord is watching the whole game. He sees the big picture. He knows things that we don't know. So, application. We need to believe that the Lord is up to something greater than we see. We need to believe that the Lord is up to something greater than we see. This means that the Lord has you where you are for a reason. And that reason is greater than what you can see now. Now, most of us would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen, yeah, yeah. Preach on, Pastor Kerry. However, <laughs> the proof of whether you actually believe that lies in how you answer these questions. Do you believe the Lord wants to do something greater in you and through you? If Jonah can trust the Lord to go preach in Nineveh, can you trust the Lord by sharing your faith in Christ with your coworker? Unless your coworker is an Assyrian. Another question that tests whether you actually are applying this truth, that God is up to something greater where you are, can you trust the Lord to invite your neighbors to church? unless they too are Assyrians that have 50 feet wide walls and 100 feet high fences. He has you where you are for a reason. It's important for us to not only agree with this truth, but to apply it because, as I said earlier, the Lord loves to use unworthy people to do unbelievable ministry. However, the prerequisite for this truth is you must be available. And in order to be available, you have to believe that he wants to do something with you that's greater than what you're doing yourself. So, the Lord has a purpose in our obedience. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 and see how Nineveh responded this time. Well, the first time they're hearing it. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. In verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Here's number three on your outline. The Lord prepares the ground for our arrival. The Lord prepares the ground for our arrival. It says the people of Nineveh believed God in verse 5. Because of Jonah's obedience and God's sovereignty, he, not, he got to see an amazing move of the Holy Spirit. Some of the least likely people, if not the most least likely people on the entire earth in that season of history, if you had said, oh, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to repent and they're going to come to the Lord. Who, them? The Assyrians? The pagan, 
power, superpower, dominating the earth with their vicious violence and wicked uh, 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 suffering of people that they inflict, they're going to come to know the Lord? Really? The prophet, he got to experience what Charles Spurgeon articulated centuries later. It is better to preach five words of God's word than five million words of man's wisdom. It was a little more than five words, but the least expected nation in the world at that time, the brutal superpower turns. It says they put on sackcloth and fasted. Uh, fasting a sackcloth shows up several places in the scriptures as an outward sign of an inward change. Fasting is the intentional abstaining from food in order to pray for a greater spiritual need. In this case, the greater need was for God to respond to their repentance by restraining his wrath. Sackcloth was a garment similar to a burlap sack. It was scratchy and uncomfortable and was meant to afflict the body. Uh, a person would put on sackcloth to show God that they wanted a favorable answer more than they wanted the daily comforts they were used to. Sometimes uh, these were used for mourning the death of a loved one, but in this case, the fasting in sackcloth was a reflection of the conviction and the grief that the Ninevites felt over their sin. Oh boy, this is going to blow you away. This blew me away when I studied this. Wait, wait to hear this. What Jonah didn't know, though, is that God had been working in Nineveh long before he got there. For example, there are at least three verified historical events the Lord used in advance to prepare the people of Nineveh for Jonah's message. There were two plagues that struck the city before he arrived, one in 765 B.C. and the second in 759. There, were also, there also was a total eclipse of the sun that occurred on June 15, 763 B.C. These three events are believed to have been signs from God to the Assyrians, and they interpreted it as God being angry with them, and it made them more open and receptive to Jonah's message in 759. It's believed 759 is when Jonah went to Nineveh. So what does that mean? That's pretty interesting, Pastor Kerry, but so what? Okay, well, if you're still so whating this, let me just get to the point, okay? So this means you don't know how the Lord has already been working in your neighbor's heart to get them ready for you to invite them to Vanguard. It means you don't know how the people that you rub shoulders with every day are being prepared by the Lord to hear the gospel from you. It could be uh, the, the Lord using the loss of a job to humble one of your relatives so they see the need to get back to church. It could be uh, a coworker that's been hearing the Vertical Minute on 88.3 Life FM over and over again, and then you show up and they go, man, I've been hearing that lately. It's funny, you, what you just said to me, I just heard that on the radio, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday this past week. 
Or maybe, or maybe they, they, they hear you invite them to Vanguard and go, you know, I saw a billboard about that church when I was driving to work the other day. Or maybe it's their marriage that's falling apart. And they're so desperate for something. They've come to the end of themselves finally and realize they need God to show up to save their marriage. And then you show up. The tools that God can use are limitless because nothing can limit him. But what fascinates me about the Jonah story, many things do, but is looking at chapter 3 here, is that God was already working in Nineveh before Jonah got there, and Jonah didn't know that. Because all Jonah looked at was the exterior. He just saw the brutal atrocities and the wickedness of that nation and their military strength and, and the torture that they inflicted on people. But he didn't know that God was moving behind the walls. So application. Assume the Lord is already working where he's placed you or is calling you. Assume that the Lord is already working where he's placed you or is calling you. Jonah 3 dares us to ask the Lord in prayer, how do you want to use me here, Lord? How do you want to use me at this school that I'm at, or this job that I'm at, or in this neighborhood, or this volunteer organization? How are you working here, Lord, and how do you want to use me? Jonah 3 dares us to ask the question, <laughs> Lord, who do you want me to invite to church next Sunday? Because I know you're already working here. Jonah 3 dares us, Lord, who needs, who's ready to hear the good news about Jesus Christ? You see, some Christians don't ask these questions because they don't care. And yet other Christians, I think, don't ask those kinds of questions because they're afraid God might answer them. So assume the Lord is already working where he's placed you or where he's calling you. Next, let's look at verses 7 through 9. And so he issued the king a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Here's number four in your outline. The Lord relents when people repent. Yes, it rhymes, but I said it that way so that you would remember it. <laughs> The Lord relents when people repent. The last few verses here in uh, Jonah chapter 3 hone in on this topic of repentance. The Old Testament and New Testament terms uh, for repent in the original language literally describe a change of mind that leads to a complete turnabout in someone's life. The way that repentance touches the heart of God can be seen in the parable of the uh, lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. You might remember that story. That's where Jesus uh, says, There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's a value statement that Jesus was making about heaven. 
My understanding that Jesus was saying there is that, is that the angels in heaven will temporarily stop worshiping the Lord in order to celebrate repentance that's taken place on earth because it's so significant to the Lord. I think that makes repentance pretty important because we know how the Lord likes his worship. I recently came across uh, this great quote from A.W. Tozer about repentance and I think sheds a little more light on it. It gives another facet to what repentance looks like. Tozer once, uh, once uh, preached this in his church. Repentance is man's sincere apology for distrusting God for so long. And faith is throwing oneself upon Christ in complete confidence. The Hebrew word for repentance shows up four times in the next three verses as the word turn in the ESV. We also see the Ninevites paint a picture of true, what true repentance looks like. So here's A, B, and C on your outline, three evidences of genuine repentance. The first one, A, is genuine repentance produces an emotional grieving. It produces an emotional grieving. Verse 7 shows the king proclaiming a citywide fast with sackcloth. I've already explained the significance of this as a sign of mourning, but in regards to sin, it shows that he wanted the people to grieve their sin, to, to grieve the significance, the damage it had done to others, and how it had hurt the Lord and offended the Lord. People that grieve over their own sin are genuinely repentant, as opposed to, I'm sorry, I got caught. That's called remorse. That's not repentance. And those of you that have kids know that you probably have seen that. Sometimes your child is just sorry they got caught, as opposed to actually repentant about their disobedience. Here's letter B. Uh, repentance, genuine repentance, produces a mental agreement. So there's an emotional part to it, and then there's a mental part to it, a mental agreement. The king says, call out mightily to God. In the original text, it literally reads, with strength, with passion, with uh, some translations render it loudly or urgently, call out to God. It reveals that the terms that the Ninevites had come to, or at least the king had come to, and that is, I agree with God that what we've been doing is wrong. He is right, we are wrong, we need to get on his agenda and how he sees us. So there was no trying to change God's mind. There was an agreement of, he's holy, we're sinful, we need to get right with him. People that are genuinely repentant agree with God or the person confronting them that they need to change. They don't justify or defend their actions. You're right, I was wrong. I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? There's no excuse for what I did. Letter C, genuine repentance produces a volitional change. Volition, it's, another, it's a synonym for the will. Let everyone turn from his evil way, says in verse 8. The Lord just doesn't want us to be sorry for our sin. He wants us to be sorry enough to change. Sorry enough to surrender it. This verse is describing a change of direction or a walking away from sin. This requires a decision of the will that says, with the Lord's help, I'm not going to do that sin again. 
I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to pray. I'm going to memorize scripture. I'm going to read books on that particular sin. I'm going to get accountability and invite into my life. And I'm going to proactively try to reduce and eventually eliminate that sin pattern in my life. It's not a, it's not a call to perfection. It's a, it's a call to progress. People that are genuinely repentant have decided to do something about their sin, and they are very intentional about it. Now, this is important for us to know, not only for our own walk with the Lord, these A, B, and C, uh, emotional grieving, mental agreement, and volitional change, are important because they also, understanding genuine repentance helps us understand and discern and answer questions such as, how do I know if my family member is actually saved? They say they know Jesus, but they don't go to church, and they don't live like a Christian. Genuine repentance and understanding A, B, and C helps us understand, well, how do I know if a fellow church member that apologized to me was sincere? Or how do I know if my child is actually born again when I'm seeing some signs that maybe they're not? Should I keep praying for my child's salvation, or are they actually repentant? Here's an irony. I've mentioned a few of these in the book of Jonah uh, that are fascinating to see. An irony um, about repentance, and, is, is, and that is that the Ninevites needed one chance to obey the Lord, but Jonah needed two. Isn't that interesting? Here's two applications uh, for point number four as we close. Uh, regarding repentance, if you are a Christ follower, live a life of repentance. That's application number one. Live a life of repentance. The Ninevites are setting an example for believers to follow here, which is ironic as well. Repentance is necessary to begin a relationship with Jesus, and it's necessary to maintain a relationship with him. As you know as well as I do, that once we give our heart to Christ, we don't stop sinning. We're going to sin again. And so repentance has to become a lifestyle where when we feel the Spirit's conviction or someone lovingly confronts us of sin, we have to be willing to go, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I need to work on that, I need to change there. And then we spend seasons of our life, and this has certainly been the case in my life, where we spend seasons where God basically says, okay, we're going to work on this area that you struggle with now. And, and, and then you find if you walk with the Lord for a while, you can kind of look back and go, oh, yeah, I remember those five years. Yeah, those five years, that was the year, those, that was the season where God was basically going, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And then one thing after the next thing kept coming up, and Bible verse after Bible verse, and every sermon was just about, do you trust me? Or, or you can look back about, uh, yeah, that season right there, yeah, those two years, that was about holiness, where God was really working on my holiness. Everything, every song on the radio, every verse I read, it was about holiness. That's how he grows us. When a believer blows it, repentance shows the Lord that we're committed to keep changing, to keep growing. Here's a second application. Um, share the gospel of repentance. 
So, so, so in, in, in these last few verses of Jonah 3, it's a good reminder for us that we need to make sure we share the gospel that Jesus and the apostles preached. Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, right out of the gates, that's when he starts his ministry, he says, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and faith. You've already heard me talk about how sadly repentance is being left out of a lot of gospel preaching these days, and only faith is mentioned. Just faith in Christ, just faith in Christ. And sadly, it creates a false gospel where people think, I can believe Jesus and say I believe who he is, but keep my sin. So I get to keep sin and have salvation. What an awesome deal. And it doesn't work like that. That's a false gospel. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The Lord will not save anybody from the consequences of their sin until they are ready to forsake their sin first. It means that we need to remember in our witnessing that Jesus doesn't want just a prayer repeated. He wants a heart that's changed. Thus, we need to invite people to repentance and faith in Christ and then watch for fruits of repentance, like we see here. Now look at verse 10 with me. It says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, again, repentance, leaving sin to turn to God. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Or in other words, God's heart is moved when our hearts are changed. God's heart is moved when our hearts are changed. So, if we want the Lord to use us like he used Jonah in chapter 3, we have to make chapter 2 a lifestyle of repentance a part of a habit of, 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 of coming back to the Lord. Lord, here's my life. Use me the way you want to use me. And then we will see God do things like he did in chapter 3. The Lord loves to use unworthy people to do unbelievable ministry. However, the question we all need to answer, are you available to the Lord? Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God that is not prejudiced. The only discrimination we see here in the scriptures when it comes to your redeeming power and the message of the gospel is sin. You don't look at skin color, you don't look at income level, title, education, part of the world that somebody lives in, musical preferences, political preferences, you don't look at any of those things. You look at the heart, and is the heart willing to forsake sin to follow you? Lord, I just want to pray that if there's anyone here today or anyone listening online that has not yet repented of their sin and by faith trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, that, Lord, you would reveal Jesus to them, that you would help them to make that life-changing, totally worth it decision to give up their sin 
in their rebellion and running from you and to turn to Christ. And as A.W. Tozer said, to completely throw themselves at Christ's feet in complete confidence in Him. Father, if there are those here today that uh, know Christ, but they've been holding on and resisting the promptings of the Spirit to give up something or to make room in their life for you to do more or maybe resisting being available, Father, please would you help them see the surpassing value the greater value of serving you and being used by you as a light in a dark world. Would you help them, Lord, to see the temporal worth of self-centered living? And finally, Lord, for our church, <laughs> we have big dreams for you, Lord. We believe you've called Vanguard into existence to to spread the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ to bring radical transformation to this region. Lord, would you use us? We want to be available. We recognize, Lord, we get to do this. It's a privilege. So here we are, Lord. Please work through us. As we close, Lord, with this song by Matt Redman, it's such an awesome song. Thank you for inspiring Matt to write it. Why does the sky, hands up, hearts open, that's our cry this morning. We want to leave today. We want to live that life. We want to have our hands up and our hearts open to what you would have us do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.